Good morning, all. Um, it's always uh, an incredible privilege um, to stand here before you. Uh, I have to, a, a couple of confessions. Uh, one, this would have to be my favorite seminary, but you're not allowed to tell anyone. Uh, I love Asbury, and uh, I love the warmth of heart and spirit and the intellect and the capacity to engage in ideas. I just think this is just a great seminary. And honestly, it's great to be here. And secondly, the other thing, uh, you're a daunting crowd. I mean, there's some, I would consider many of my teachers in the room, and, and you're expecting a, a kind of formal kind of presentation. I feel like I want to give something a little less formal today. So hopefully, you'll take me as I come uh, to you. But I do love you very much, and it's great to be here. And uh, I also want to, just before I start today, just acknowledge World Women's Day that uh, I want to respect the sisters in the room. I'm just so grateful for your patience and your witness to us, uh, your Christ-likeness, which uh, is very impressive. And uh, I wouldn't, yeah, I'm just I'm grateful for you. We need more of you in the world. So I just want to acknowledge that uh, before I start. Um, let me start um, with a bit of a personal story. Um, a, a few years ago, it would be three years ago now, my dad passed away. Uh, now, we've been living in America the last uh, 10 years or so, and Dad hasn't been well. So we'd get on occasion, you know, phone calls, uh, just saying, look, Dad's in hospital, or he's gone to see the doctor, he's dicey, you know. But never any, anything urgent. Anyway, I got a call from my brother one day, and he said, look, Al, I just, I think it, it's time. I think, you know, he's going to die. And uh, so we packed up, of course, and we uh, went as quickly as we could to back to Australia, where we, we, we're from. And, uh, and sure enough, Dad wasn't in a good shape. Uh, and, uh, he, you know, so, but, you know, being my father, somewhat mischievous. Now, let me just say something about my dad. He wasn't a particularly religious person. In fact, I would say quite the opposite. Somewhat naughty and uh, mischievous and uh, resisted much of, you know, and we're from a Jewish family, so make it even more complicated. So, uh, so anyway, like, you know, but Dad, uh, He's always, he was asking at this time to my brother, who is a Christian sister, is also a Christian sister-in-law, and then uh, my, my, my wife and all that, he was asking about the, uh, the, 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 in the rod and the staff in, in Psalm 23. So I think Deb, my wife, was thinking, oh, this is, he wants to know about the Bible. And I'm saying, no, actually, I know what he really thinks about that, right? So Dad, the only book I think he ever read was a book by a guy called Eric von Doniken. Uh, and it goes to the 80s, a guy who wrote the book Chariot of the Gods, which basically said that basically we were colonized by aliens and, you know, they got hold of us and experimented with the monkeys and the classic. I mean, it's, it, but it was widely read and people believed it. Uh, but it tried to explain also how did those incredible pyramids get in there and Machu Picchu and all that. My dad would go and visit. It was something he, he really believed in. Uh, anyway, so he was asking about the rod and the staff, and actually, I, and I was saying, no, actually, I think it's inappropriate, because I, I know what he really believes about the rod and the staff. He believed that they were instruments given to us by aliens, uh, or given to Moses, actually, and it's what Moses could split the waters and, you know, win the battles by holding up the staff, and it was magic, it was some sort of weaponry, okay, given to us, or given to the Israelite people uh, in order to do what they did. And so I think here, it, I thought it was inappropriate. I think he was flipping the bird to us. It was, you know, it was right on his deathbed. I thought, inappropriate, Dad, you know, whatever. Anyway, but everyone took it as an opportunity to say he's interested in spirituality and all that. So one night we're sitting at home uh, and we're having dinner. The doctor phones and said, look, I think, you know, this is the night. 
uh, you should come around. Now, let me say this, not good advice, uh, particularly in the seminary where many of you are training to be ministers, don't follow this advice, but I would prefer not ever to see my parents, you know, I saw both my parents pass away. And they, yeah, I would prefer not to. I know it's not good pastoral advice, so drop that. But anyway, nonetheless, uh, so we're going around and we're gathering. It's, it's such a fraught time. Anyway, um, so we're sitting around the, the bed and, um, and my wife spotted uh, a Gideon Bible uh, somewhere. Um, they're still in Australia, those things. And, uh, and uh, well, you, you know, and... He said, look, he's been asking about Psalm 23 the whole week. Why don't we read the psalm to him? So I was a little too emotional to read, so I handed it to my brother. My brother begins to read the psalm, but I'm looking intensely at Dad as uh, we've been reading the psalm. And, I, you know, the Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. He makes me lie down in green pastures. And it gets to, and I rod and I start off, they comfort me. And I kid you not, my dad dies on that verse. On that verse. And... Uh, I mean, it, it, and I was like shocked. I mean, for, for one, you know, I began to reflect on this. I mean, what does that mean? I mean, he goes into eternity, no hint that he'd ever come to the Lord. I, I don't know what, you know, that's in God's hands, but I'm not claiming any of that. But he goes into eternity with that verse, which was a singular verse that really bugged him for so long, uh, you know, ringing in his ears or mind or whatever it is that you've got once you die. I don't know. Right, but, uh, and then for me, it was like, oh my goodness, you know, I had to take that seriously. And I came to the conclusion on a lot of reflection and prayer about it is that actually God, that, that my dad was actually giving me the keys to his heart, actually, all those years, and that I hadn't paid attention. That for some reason I would mock it, you know, I'd say, oh, dad, you know, if the aliens didn't make it, who made the aliens? Oh, I don't know, all that stuff. So I'd always mock it. I, w- I was just impatient with it. I thought it was stupid. And, uh, but... But what if he had been giving me the key to his heart all along and that I missed the opportunity? And I believe that as a missionary, that's something that, that is important, that there are keys to culture and that people have a particular key that you know, we need to be able to be attentive to. The thing is that for most of us, I think, as I broaden this out to a broader discussion, is I think that we as the inheritors of the Protestant tradition, uh, 500 years now uh, of Protestantism, I believe that part of the problem is that our frequencies, our radars are set to a different decade or different century, the 16th century largely. Most of the ways we interpret the world were formatted in the 16th century and then have only been reformatted in that same vein ever since. Um, If I was more accurate about this, I would say that really we've inherited, I believe, somewhat reduced understandings of God, gospel, Christology for sure. We've collapsed our Christology into soteriology, Jesus is just our saviour, but not our Lord, particularly. Uh, and, and, and the popular heritage of, uh, of Protestantism is somewhat reduced. And if I may just stay on reductionism, and it's appropriate to kind of talk about this in seminaries, that I think that for the most part, most of our problems I have come to believe are derived, are, are, are reductions. You know when the Bible uses the word heresy, it only uses it once. Uh, it actually doesn't mean that person's a bad person. Uh, the heretic, really, in the Bible is someone who has grasped a truth that others have not seen, perhaps, maybe obscured. The problem is with the heretic is that they actually make that the whole truth. They lose the kind of overall context of where, of where that truth came from, and it becomes everything for them. So every heretic's got a verse of Scripture, right? 
There was, but, and that scripture has got some truth in it that others have overlooked. The problem is that becomes everything. And we Protestants are masters of that. We kind of reduce everything down to little formula. And that's the problem is that I think we've inherited a very reduced understanding. And particularly when it comes to the issue at hand, we've got a reduced understanding of the human, a reduced anthropology. But I also think we have a reduced sense of the gospel. We've come down to very narrow understandings of what the gospel is and how it applies to the world. And I think we need to broaden that out somewhat. One of my favorite pieces of poetry is written by a man obsessed with God in his own way, uh, William Blake. And uh, this is a very famous uh, verse of his uh, that uh, a band called The Doors actually took its name from. Uh, Aldous Huxley also wrote a book on this too, Unipop Peyote. But um, nonetheless, we won't worry about that. Uh, Actually, it's quite an interesting book worth reading. Uh, It goes like this. If the doors of perception were cleansed, then everything would appear to man as it is, infinite. For man has closed himself up till he sees things through the narrow chinks in his cavern. The imagery here uh, that Blake is suggesting is that we, uh, and you've got to see this visibly, is that what we tend to do is to live our lives in the back of a cave. We increasingly head towards the back where it's safe and secure and we know the cave. The problem is, if you could try and picture this, the further back you get into a cave, the narrow the aperture of the cave seems to be. So we begin to see the world through very narrow, narrow slits at the back of the cave where we feel safe and secure. And what he's suggesting to us here is that as we would, if we would only just stick our heads outside of the cave again and begin to look again at the world in, with the new kind of eyes, we would see everything as it really is, filled with kind of sacred and God spiritual stuff. Uh, and I, I think he's right. I think it, that we need to, we've become very, very pedestrian and very narrowed in our understanding of the world. Remember that reductionist idea. We, we're just hovering at the back with these formulas that were attenuated to different, different times and different places in history, and we need to pay more attention to the time in which we're living now. We, if we were kind of would open up our eyes to see, you know, with new open up the doors of perception, then we would discover that actually there's no such thing really as secular culture. Not in the way we tend to use that term anyway. I mean, the original secular kind of, the idea of the French Revolution was to take the kind of hegemony of the church out of the equation. Uh, it doesn't mean that people don't believe in God, or they don't have spirituality. All people do that. Most people think Jesus is pretty cool. It's actually the problem with the church itself. And that was the, where the church was to become one of the religious agencies in culture. We couldn't presume our, kind of, our, our privileged status any longer. And, but it doesn't mean people are not spiritual. And the thing is that we, we need to see that. Actually, just look at people's songs. Uh, we here in the South. The South, in my opinion, is haunted by God. I mean, it's everywhere. Images of Jesus and, and in your language, just, it's a haunting. It's there, evident in all things. Uh, southern. But I think that's true of a, a lot of America too, very spiritual, very religious, just not in the classic ways in which we've come to begin to see the world. And what does a missional response to this mean? Well, how do we respond to this kind of challenge? We at Forge is one of the agencies I work with, training people just to be in everyday mission, just across the street sometimes, in incarnational mission. One of the things we say is that you've, you've got to, to learn to listen. We've got, it's missionary listening to our culture learning to listen again. 
The guy who invented the stethoscope said this, listen, listen, listen to your patients, they're telling you the answer. We still use that sucker today to, you know, diagnose, well I don't, but, but you know, to diagnose people's illnesses. It's a listening device. And I would argue that we need to pay attention again, to open our eyes and listen, to open the doors of our perception and hear again and, and listen. And so we say that there's two basically things that you need to pay attention to. You don't know the answers until you get there. You go into the context and you ask two fundamental questions. What is gospel for this people group? What is going to sound like yes to this people? What's going to resonate with them? And that's maybe the key word there. The other one which I won't be dealing with today is what is church for this people group. You don't know until you get there. There's no front-loading your ecclesiology into the equation. That violates the incarnation. So we need to become attentive to the kind of dimensions of, of human culture and, and begin to insinuate the gospel and the church into those places without presuming we know until you've done the listening, the listening posture. Um, let me give you an example of this. As I mentioned, that we, you know, much of the ways of thinking about the gospel are attenuated to the 16th century. Well, Martin Luther was, of course, the, 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 the kind of catalyst of the, of the Reformation. Uh, and uh, he was an Augustinian monk. And just to know that this was medieval Europe. Now, everything in medieval Europe reminded him of his place within the universe. So if you'd go into a, 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 a cathedral, what you would discover is that right at the top, uh, at the, at the, right at the top of, the, you know, whatever they call the apex of the, of the cathedral would be Christ the Creator, Christo Panto Crator. You'd sit right at the top and then you'd have layers and layers of angels and kind of other beings and all that until eventually you get to human beings and then hell, just below us, right, just burning nicely. Yeah. And, uh, but, 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 but they lived in a universe where God was everywhere. Uh, and he was Augustinian, kind of like the Calvinists of the day, right? So he believed in a low view of the human and a very high view of God, right? Uh, and, and so when he would think about holy God, and he was a spiritual man, he wanted to know God. Uh, he desperately wanted to know God. He would have what he called his Anfechtungen. Uh, and the best way to explain what that, that means is a panic attack. So he would think about holy God, uh, and he would say, he'd have a panic attack, right? Now, I don't know if you've ever had one, uh, I've had it once, and I honestly thought I was dying. Um, quirky story. I mean, I, I, we went out for dinner with my wife and my sister-in-law, and um, I don't know, I must have just been tired. I'd been come back from a, a trip, and I, yeah, whatever. I was t and now, going back to the car, I thought, oh my goodness, I'm having a heart attack. I'm, I'm really not well. And the, the quirky thing is that I, was, I just got into the back seat, uh, and I thought, I'll just... I'll just die quietly in the corner here. <laughs> and uh, just, you know, uh, we'll get back home and I'll be gone, you know. I'm not going to make a scene here, okay. Uh, <laughs> well, I was still alive when I got home, but... Uh, um, and then I, th I thought, oh my goodness, it's going a couple of hours. I think I should maybe go to the hospital, but click. I was a military, in, uh, I was a, a medic in the military, and so I thought, maybe I'm hyperventilating. Hello, put a paper bag over your mouth and breathe into it and... True enough, <laughs> it took my Anfechtungen away. But uh, nonetheless, uh, Luther would have these, and he would think about God, and then he was struggling with Romans particularly. How can the righteousness of God, righteousness of God be good news to me? If God is, is, is righteous, I'm done. I'm a sinner, right? And he begins to grapple with it, and, and of course he begins to, he sees that actually righteousness is also a gift given to us, conferred by grace through faith. And that, of course, unleashes the Reformation, and rest is history. 
Now, folks, the thing is with that is that, oh, and here, don't hear what I'm not saying. I believe that we are sinners. I believe that God has provided for us. I will take atonement any way God wants to give it. I don't question it. I'm all right for that. Right, okay, so just to know where I'm at. I believe that we are guilty before God and we need forgiveness. I'm not saying that. But here's the problem. It's not the only aspect of the gospel. If the only tool that you've got is a hammer, then everything begins to look awfully like a nail. You treat everything the same way. And the problem is, is that if we, we have only one understanding of the gospel that is narrowed down to justification by faith narratives, then of course we no longer, we, we, we force everyone to fit within that kind of that framework. And that's of course a huge problem, missionally speaking. Now think about New York City, and by if you think I'm heretical on this, uh, I've squared off with Tim Keller on this, and uh, he agrees in his understanding of New York City. So we say New York City, right? If you went to New York City today, uh, how many people do you think are having unfechtungen when they think about Holy God, if they think of Holy God at all in New York City today? How many do you think? Not that many, right? Maybe 20. I don't know. It's not the same universe, folks. No one lives in Luther's medieval universe, and no one struggles with the same kind of ideas. Are they sinners? Yes. Do they struggle with things? Yes. They've got life-controlling problems. They dedicate themselves to idols, things that will enslave them in the end. They promise them everything, deliver nothing. That's the better metaphor for the city. If you want to unlock that city, don't use the justification by faith narrative. Not first. Understand it through the, uh, the kind of, I think, the matrix of idolatry. And now you're onto the biblical ground. Idolatry appears on every page of the Old Testament as implied in every page of the New. It's part in our worldview called monotheism. You're on strong ground there if you were to use that as the kind of primary category. But here's the problem. If, if we approach New York City and other cities like it uh, increasingly in this country, then, then what actually happens if it's only justification by faith, then you have to make everyone feel bad about themselves before they can feel good about themselves, right? And so we come, oh, you're, we become the tongue-clucking Pharisee. And that, friends, is not particularly good news. And you suck at it when you play Holy Spirit. You're not meant to be the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit is more concerned about that than you are. You're not to be the moral guardians. It's not your role. You're to be good news advocates. Find the key to the city and be good news. What is good news for New York City? Well, it's not going to be the same as Wittenberg in Germany. Although there will be those issues there. And God in his own time will deal with them. And, you know. So uh, I would argue that when you look at America today, there are other categories we could look at and we could maybe find uh, new ways to kind of articulate good news into that environment. For one, I think uh, America is a super, super competitive culture. Um, and in, in competitive cultures, here's the problem, right? You, everyone wants to be a winner, right? So the thing is that here's the problem with winning. There's one winner. What that creates is a culture of losers, right? Because you only get one winner, right? If you say something, only one person, that's the standard of beauty is so high, then everyone else is ugly by comparison. And the problem is with this is that you're dealing with actually something the Bible deals with more than it does guilt and, uh, and, 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 and forgiveness, which is the issue of shame and honor. We live in a shamed-out culture. Because, and shame, by the way, is an internal register. It's a different way of understanding the human. Shame has got to do with my own assessment of myself, either by my, my culture's clues on that, but, but it's, it, it, it forces me to reflect on myself and I fall short and it drops your head. 
it's a dropping of the head, it's a, you lose face. Um, and the problem is with that, folks, is that I think we lived in, right now, in, in a, a profoundly shamed culture, but we don't know how to deal with it. How do you respond to a person who's being shamed? Well, actually, I think the Bible deals with that. It's a lot to do with unconditional grace, love, which you guys are good at, by the way. I mean, where's these people? I think we address this issue pretty well in that regard. But you can't use forgiveness of sins to address an issue of shame. It doesn't work. It's a different register. And the gospel, that aspect of the gospel does not apply. You can't force fit it. It's not going to really work. So we need to learn to kind of communicate the gospel in ways that are going to make sense to people in that, sense, in that way. Uh, and uh, you, we can play on that in many ways. But, you know, it was uh, G.K. Chesterton. Uh, I think people's sin is a clue, by the way. Idolatry being one of those. But people's general besetting sins, I think, are a clue to what is important to them. If they're repeating something so much, that's, that's a clue. Something's going on there about what, why it is it being repeating. Just ask the question. Uh, G.K. Chesterton said this, that the man knocking on the door of a brothel is looking for God. Which Freud was meant to have said to him, uh, in response to that, um, that the man going to church is looking for sex. <laughs> Which actually is not... If, 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 if you, <laughs> sexuality and spirituality are kissing cousins, and they're quite close together. So it might actually be quite more true than we think. Well, that was classic Freud. But now here's the thing is, what is being sought when a person goes to a brothel, folks? Now, if you put your moral, moral responses, just suspend your judgment about the moral aspects of that, because I think it's immoral, but, but suspend that. Look into it, and you'll find what's been sought when a person pays for sex is that they just, just want to be touched, uh, want to experience something of ecstasy or escape from pain or my sense of misery of the world in which I'm living in, even to the degree that they're willing to pay for it. That's actually it's quite tragic. Uh, they're looking for the right thing in the wrong places. All our vices, says C.S. Lewis, are virtues gone wrong. <laughs> What's a person when they take drugs, which I came to the Lord on copious amounts of marijuana, just by the way, and it may be shows in this, <laughs> but... Uh, but uh, 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 but uh, my wife, if you think I'm crazy, she came to the Lord on acid watching the late great planet Earth, right? And she's soundly converted. <laughs> I'm just saying, but when a person takes drugs, for instance, and I know this world, right? I came to the Lord in this, without any Christians around, actually, prevenient grace. That's another thing, by the way. But, but uh, what's being sought is there's two basic, uh, I think, agendas, escape from pain, and from reality, which is too painful to cope with, and then people can't cope with it. So there's drugs, the downer types of drugs that take you down. The upper types of party drugs are for ecstasy. Both of those folks are religious quests or existential quests, right? They're part of what human beings do, looking for the right thing in the wrong places. And so again, we, you know, once we open our perception to see, I think we could be able to begin to know that actually God has got an answer for every, every of those issues that are present themselves to us if we're just willing to kind of widen our register of the human concern as well as how God has dealt with it. Uh, I mentioned already prevenient grace. I mean, the, the, I mean, I think that is just an incredible, incredible tool that actually is part of your heritage. And as Wesley would say, that God is involved in every person calling them to himself in and through Jesus Christ. God is the great evangelist. You don't bring God in your pocket. You don't, you, God is already there. In every situation, uh, in, the, in, in the darkest of places, God's there. You can join with him if you do it, you know, in, to, to join with his cause. It's, it, it's all right. 
Find out what God is doing and join with Him. That is a really good approach to, to mission in the world in which we live in. Uh, theophany. Uh, that, that everyone has religious experiences. You know, everyone does. Uh, what we don't know is how to do it and make the connections, which I think we're called to, to make those connections. People just don't know that actually it, it might be God. Uh, I'm a bit mischievous at times, and so uh, I once taught at a wedding, uh, this short sermon, but that it was God who made the orgasm. Well, you know, uh, well, I mean, this, most Christians have never heard that God and orgasm in the same sentence, so I suspect it's the same here. But the thing is, that the question I would ask is that, wouldn't you like to meet the person who could make that orgasm? Well, I was talking about actually in the, in the, in the, in the, in the fullest sense, not in an unholy sense, of, but it's saying is that if, if it wasn't God who made it, who do you think made it? Because we Christians act as if it wasn't God, right? You can't mention it. And we get all kind of, ooh, really? The fact is it's part of our lives. And, you know, that's who we are. God made that. Wouldn't you like to do, you know, to meet that person who can do things like that? And I want to suggest to you that all people have God experiences, just they don't know what to do with them. And one of our jobs is to say, you know, to bring the good news. Is that what you're looking for here? You can find here in its fullness. First and second things. You can't love these things too much, but you can love them too much in relationship to your love for God. If you love them more than you love God, then you're in trouble. But actually, we can love the world in which we're living. We, we could look, look wider. Uh, I could go on about it, but simply just let me finish this way, that I think seminary is a wonderful place to think bigger, to correct the reductions, to take time to think about our formulas that we've inherited, to value tradition, but to also to ask the question again in the, in the world in which we're living and how do we actually think appropriately as missionaries to this culture, not assuming that people in the 16th century have got the answer for the 21st century situation that we find ourselves. Learn from it, but don't necessarily just repeat it. Uh, the answer, I suggest to you, is always bigger than we want to think. Always greater. God, if you've got God in your pocket, it's not God that you got. If you think you've got God in a formula, that's not God. That's a formula. And so we need to allow God to be God ever greater, always bigger. And I think to heal our reductions, let's look bigger and open our eyes and uh, widen the doors of our perception and listen to people's hearts and and, and, and make the match between what God has done and what people are looking for and bring them together. Um, this is your priestly service to the Lord. Thank you.